Good morning. Uh, we're continuing our series this morning in First Peter, and we've come to chapter 3 and verse 8, which picks us up where Tim left us off last week. I wonder what gives you confidence. I wonder what makes you feel confident. Confidence can be an elusive thing. Perhaps it's sitting in the family scrabble game, uh, looking at your tiles and knowing that you're going to land an absolute zinger on a triple word point. Perhaps it's the confidence of walking into your exam, uh, knowing that the teacher who's desperate that all of their students pass has dropped some very heavy hints. Maybe it's even the confidence that you get in your own abilities from experience, from learning, from knowing that you can do something. And I was talking to a colleague recently about this and we were reflecting on things that we had done at early stages in our careers that we wouldn't even dream of doing now because we'd, we'd gained the confidence of experience and of knowledge. And confidence can be an elusive thing when things start to go against us, when things perhaps don't work out quite the way we expected, whenever everything doesn't look quite so rosy. And Peter is writing his letter to groups of Christians for whom the world is starting to go against them. They're starting to face persecution, hardship, difficulty, simply for being Christian. Now, it's, it's not widespread persecution in the sense that they're all being rounded up into camps. They're not being purged from cities but they are becoming aware of the fact that they are a minority in a wider world that believes something very different to what they believe. And they're starting to feel the persecution and the suffering that comes with that. And Peter knows that he is writing to these people in such a vulnerable time in their faith because it's very natural whenever we face suffering and persecution for being a Christian that our faith wavers. If what we believe is right, well, why does no one else believe it? If, if, if what we believe is true, then why isn't everything working out for us in life? Why aren't things coming together for us? Why, why are people turning on us simply for following God? And Peter writes to these people, and in this passage, he continues his theme of suffering for the sake of being a Christian. And he wants them to be able to stand and face that with confidence. And so we're going to look at three reasons, at least that I can see in this passage, that Peter wants to give his hearers so that they would have confidence whenever they're facing suffering. He wants them to have confidence because... The Lord has his hand on us. He wants them to have confidence in the face of suffering because God is in control despite how things look. And finally, he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked that path before us. So let's have a think about each of those in turn. Now, uh, there are some very difficult verses in this passage and we will get to them. But it's very easy to be a bit of a, a Bible reading magpie and to shoot straight for the juicy little shiny bit that draws our attention and to miss the wider message of the passage. And the wider message of this passage is clear. Peter is talking to his listeners about suffering and he is trying to build confidence in them. So let's not lose sight of that. 
First of all, Peter wants him to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has his, his hand on us. He has his eye on us. Look at what he says there. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's very easy whenever you're a, a minority group in a, a wider society to feel isolated. And perhaps uh, as a Christian in a secular workplace, you felt isolated as well. You felt like you're the only one there who believes what you believe or thinks what you think. Conversations start about different political or moral issues that are going on in the world and, and, and you feel like you just want to disappear under the table because you know as soon as you speak up, everyone's going to turn against you. And yet, despite that perception that we are isolated, Peter is reminding us that we are never outside of the sight of the Lord. We are never away from his gaze. Any of you who are parents will know that whenever you take your children to a park or a public place, uh, whatever they're doing, wherever they go, you will never take your eye off them, not even for a second. And that's what Peter is telling us here as Christians. We are never out of the gaze of the Lord. He has always got his hand on us. And in fact, as well, the Lord's face is set against those who are persecuting us. So if you like, Peter is sort of pulling back the curtain of eternity here and showing us the reality that despite how things look to us, despite how we may even feel, the Lord has his eye on us always. And so with that knowledge, we can stand confidently in the face of persecution. And there's some application from that thought to our lives today as well, isn't it? Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, bless. Bless. I wonder what your behaviour is like whenever that guy in the office who always seeks to belittle your Christian faith starts to chip in, starts, starts to mock or to deride or, 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 or to, to belittle you in front of your co-workers or your colleagues or your friends. I wonder what, what response you have. I know what my natural response would be. Fire two salvos back. And yet, that's not what Peter would have us do. Peter says, you're not to repay reviling with reviling. You're not to repay evil with evil. Instead, when you're faced with that sort of persecution in your work, in your school, maybe even in your family and in your own home, you're to bless that person. You're to bless that person. And the, there's another application off the back of that because Peter then goes on to develop this idea and tells us that our response to suffering, our response in the face of that suffering for the sake of being Christian is actually a witness. It is a witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what he says um, in, in verse 15, um, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter's expectation is that the way that we face suffering, the way that we deal with this hardship, will, will be a witness. And that, that makes sense because 
What else would motivate people to bless those who are cursing them, who are persecuting them, who are doing evil to them? What on earth could possibly motivate you to bless those who persecute you? Well, the answer that Peter is, is holding up is that there is nothing on earth that would motivate you to do that. But there is the eternal hope that you have found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, be ready always to give an answer, to give a defence for the hope that is in you. And then again, knowing our, our nature, knowing our desire perhaps to, uh, to, to get into a, a, an argumentative or a pugilistic confrontation. Uh, he says, doing it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, being known for good things. So he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord's eyes are on us. The Lord's hand is on us. And that our life is to be then a witness to that as people look on and see how we deal with suffering. And secondly then, Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord is in control of what is happening to us. He says, for, for, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And he almost just sort of, that, that could slip under the radar, couldn't it, as you read this quickly. Um, if that be God's will. Peter assumes as a given that if difficult things are happening to us for being a Christian, God is still in control. God is still ultimately on the throne because as we thought earlier, it's very natural to feel when we are being persecuted for being a Christian, where has God gone? Has God been outsmarted here? Has he been outwitted here? But Peter takes it as an absolute given that even in the midst of our suffering, the Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. Again, he's, pu he's pulling back that veil of eternity and saying, look beyond the immediate situation that you find yourself in and see the true eternal reality. God is in control of all of this. The Lord is allowing this to happen. He's already told them in chapter 1 that, that, that some at least of the good of the suffering and persecution and trials that they're facing is that it proves the tested genuineness of their faith. God is in control and God is accomplishing something through it. So Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering based on the fact that God is still in control. No matter how hard the situation is, no matter how difficult the persecution that you're facing, God is still in control. And then he, go, he goes on to, to sort of apply this to our lives Again, in, 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 in an even more incredible way, because he says that through our suffering, we will receive a blessing. He says that in that, that first um, section of today's reading, where he says, Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless, that you might obtain a blessing. And again, he says, it is, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, that's okay. That's okay, because... You will be blessed. 
As I've said, he's already said our suffering uh, proves the tested genuineness of our faith. And that brings a confidence in ourselves. And that is a blessing. Um, But he also makes clear that in Peter's mind, suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering for being a follower of Jesus Christ, brings a very special blessing of its own into your life. He says we share later on in chapter 4, we're sharing in the Lord's sufferings. So how does God bless us through our suffering? Well, I suggest at least one way I think that that could happen. As we suffer at the hands of the world around us and we share in the suffering of the Lord Jesus, we understand more of what the Lord went through for us. And that draws us closer to the Lord Jesus. And it also inevitably then draws us further from the world, from the values and from the society and from the systems around us. Last time I was speaking from 1 Peter, I said that one of Peter's aims in this letter is to unsettle us, to to, to, to make us feel less at home in this world around us. And to call us to our ultimate heavenly home. And so as we share in the suffering of the Lord Jesus, we're drawn closer to him. And turned away from the sinful system and world that surrounds us. So Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has his hand on us. He wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord is still in control of what is happening to us. And then I'm going to contend that Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked that path before us. We're following in the footsteps, if you like, of the Lord Jesus. And this brings us to verses 18 and 19, and I'm just going to refresh them again for you. Peter says, For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, as you read today's passage up to verse 18, it is relatively plain sailing and then all of a sudden we come across these verses that make you wish you had swapped dates with someone else on the preaching router. These verses 18 and 19 to be serious are some of the most complex um, verses in in the whole of scripture. Uh, There are um, complexities in the language, complexities in, in certainly the theology that can be launched off the back of them. There are at least five ways to interpret this section and there are very learned and very godly evangelical scholars who will hold to each of those. Um, And I'm not even going to attempt to summarise those today because that would be boring. Um, And I I don't even really have time to give you a huge defence of why I've come to the conclusion that I have. But I'm going to tell you what I think Peter's talking about here and critically why I think he's saying it in the midst of this passage. So let's start with some background. Noah. 
Noah as a character would have been well known to the Jewish listeners uh, in Peter's uh, audience. Um, he would have been um, known from the Old Testament, but he would also have been known from the Book of Enoch. Uh, and, and, and the Book of Enoch was a book not by Enoch, um, but it fleshed out the story in Genesis 6, where uh, there's a reference to the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and having these children who were mighty men on earth. It's not entirely clear what's going on there. But the feeling in the book of Enoch is that those sons of God were evil demonic spirits. And it seems like Peter at least concurs with that here. But Noah would also have been known in the pagan culture around the, the, the church at the time. Uh, there were no less than four Noah or flood stories that had been passed down independent of the biblical record at that time. And about a century later from Peter's writing, there was a series of coins minted showing Noah and episode from Noah's life. So the figure of Noah was at least known in society. And so Peter reaches for that relatively well-known figure and relatively well-known story and pulls it into the passage here to use it as an example um, to make the point that he's trying to make. So he, he, he says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So who are the spirits in prison? Who are these spirits in prison to whom Christ proclaims? Well, uh, the word for spirit is never used for human in the New Testament without it being explicitly clarified. And it's not explicitly clarified here. Uh, and so it appears that Peter is referencing those spiritual beings, demonic spiritual beings, who were active in the Genesis 6 narrative. And we know that they were, this is a limited group, they were active at the time of Noah, they were disobedient and they are now in prison. And so that's the conclusion that these were demonic spirits, evil spirits who were active in, in stirring up and fermenting the rebellion of humanity at that time that got to such a scale that the Lord felt that he had no alternative but to destroy all of humanity, bar Noah and his family and start again. So if those are the spirits, well then, when we're told that Christ went and he proclaimed, we have to ask ourselves, well, where did he go and what did he proclaim? And we have a few options. Uh, one of them is the notion that he descended to hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection, usually, and that's found in the Apostles' Creed. And it's found in some of the hymns that we still sing in church today. And certainly in some strands of, of Christian thinking. Uh, but there's actually not a huge amount of biblical support for the idea that Jesus went to hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, certainly the word for went that's used here is not the word for descended. And in fact, uh, the idea of Christ going to hell between crucifixion and resurrection was probably developed later. And then this verse was co-opted as evidence for it. But the, So the, the word is not descended. But interestingly, it is a word that Peter uses again a little bit later on in our passage from this morning. 
He says in verse 22, talking of Jesus Christ, who has gone, so that's the same word as went, who has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter, the word that he is used here when Christ went and proclaimed is the same word for went that he uses later on when he's talking about the Lord's ascension to heaven. So let's go back then to verse 18 and see what Peter's saying. He's saying that the Lord Jesus was crucified. So he died. That he was raised. He was resurrected. And he went. Which I contend is a reference to his ascension. To his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. So Peter's saying... Christ suffered once for sin, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So if the going is his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, what is the proclamation that he makes? What is this declaration that he makes? Well, the declaration has to be the ultimate defeat, the ultimate destruction and frustration of the purposes of those spirits it's it's as if the lord in completing that redemptive work announces the final verdict the final hammer comes down in the courtroom and and they are proclaimed as being totally and utterly defeated the lord has won the victory god and good and his plan of redemption has triumphed and this plan to destroy humanity at the time of noah has been totally and utterly destroyed so that is, is what I believe Peter is referring to here. The Lord died, he was resurrected, and he was raised from the dead and then later ascended to heaven. And that ascension was the proclamation of his victory over the evil spirits who were active at the time of Noah. So why is Peter saying that here? Peter is reaching for this familiar story to his readers and he is using it to bolster their faith. He's using it to encourage them that the Lord has already won the victory. His victory has been certain and declared and proclaimed. So those evil spirits that you read about in Enoch and that you love to talk about because it's such a fascinating story. The Lord has proclaimed victory over them. The Lord has triumphed. The Lord who we follow who we love, who we have devoted our lives to, he is triumphant. So Peter's saying, you standing, facing persecution for following him, have confidence. The Lord has walked this path before you. The Lord has been victorious. So in conclusion, what has Peter said to us? He said that he wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering. He says confidence because the Lord has his hand on us. Have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord is in control of what is happening. Have confidence in the face of suffering because the Lord has walked this path before you and has been victorious. Christ, Peter says, also suffered. It's very modest phrasing that Peter uses, isn't it? Christ also suffered. We're talking about your suffering. We're talking about your hardship. But Lord Jesus suffered as well. 
It's as if he reminds us just of the wider context that our little lives fit into. Because the suffering we experience for Christ is nothing compared to the suffering that he experienced for us. He has us in his hand. He is in control. And he has gone before us on the road that we are on. And he walks beside us every step of the way still. So as we face difficulty, as we face hardship, we are following a saviour who didn't sit and observe the whole thing remotely, but who has walked every step, who is with us still in every step of the way. So have confidence. Have confidence in the face of suffering. Amen.